0: Well, please grab your Bibles and turn with me to the book of First Corinthians. First Corinthians chapter 14 is where we are, starting in verse 20 today. Welcome back to the book of First Corinthians. It's been a few weeks, I think about three weeks since we've been in this book on a Sunday morning. And we have to continue to go through more difficulties of chapter 14 before we get to delightful chapter 15, the resurrection chapter. We just have some more difficult stuff to plow through, you and I, and uh, we'll, we'll do that. But uh, before we get into the passage today, let me give you just a brief refresh about where we've been. Paul is concerned, the Apostle Paul is concerned about the church in Corinth that they have God-given diversity in their God-given unity, That they don't just have diversity without the unity, but that they have this God given diversity as the Holy Spirit has distributed gifts in the church as he has desired, that they have that diversity with unity. He says to them over and over in this chapter, I think you were really maybe getting tired of hearing it, uh, so maybe your ears will hear this afresh, but he was concerned that the gifts in the church only be practiced as they edified people. The gifts weren't to be used to show off in any way, but they were to be used for spiritual edification. And particularly, he's been talking about prophecy and tongues. There's been a lot of comparing and contrasting with these two gifts, and that'll continue for the next couple of Sundays. Paul says that tongues, this special gift, those were only useful if they were interpreted. That's been Paul's point in the church, if tongues were to be used, these different languages, they were only of benefit if there was someone there to say, what on earth was being said? Because for everyone else, it'll just sound like gibberish. The Corinthians, of course, had made this into a spiritual competition where they had been granted these gifts by the Holy Spirit. And isn't this just an amazing illustration of how depraved we are, (laughs) that even though we can be saved and regenerated, that there's just still this sin nature lingering around? And we take a good gift of God and turn it into something like competition. Well, that's what the Corinthians were doing with this gift of tongues, trying to see who is the most spiritual. And so Paul says, look, in the church, prophesying is the greater gift. And we start to see now, starting with today's passage, that there must be order in the way these things are expressed. That was his message to the Corinthians. And this is one of the hardest passages in 1 Corinthians. Uh, it's going to be a bit of a journey this morning. I think I've said this is one of the hardest passages in First Corinthians like 10 times through this series. Uh, so maybe this is in the top 10, I guess. but uh, we start with verse 20, and I want to read verse 20 and then open with a prayer. Paul says, "Brethren, do not be children in your thinking. yet in evil be infants, but in your thinking, be mature. let's pray. Lord God, we do call on you as holy, holy, holy. You are the Lord God Almighty, God in three persons, blessed Trinity. This is our confession. You are good, you are eternal, and you have shown yourself so gracious and kind and faithful to us, and we owe you all things. We owe you our lives in response to the amazing gift of salvation that you've given us. Lord, we ask that today as we look into Your Word that You would nourish us, that You would nourish our souls, that as we feast on the words that You've given through Your revelation, that we would be built up and edified today. That is our pursuit. You've called the church in Corinth to pursue edification, and we want to submit to that. We want to join in that fight and be edified as we gather. Lord, we ask together that though I am a fallen man, an imperfect man in so many ways, a sinner. Lord, that I would not get in the way of your text this morning, but that your word would be clear to your people. Please bless us in this way, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, notice the first word of this passage in verse 20. Paul says, brethren, amid strong rebuke and correction, you'll find a few times in this letter, Paul gives them this Term of endearment, and he still calls this church his family. Brothers and sisters is how he starts off. He's going to give them some more sharp correction, but let's not lose sight of the fact that Paul does still recognize that they are his brothers. And the admonition that he gives them here at the start of the passage is how they think: do not be children in your thinking, be mature in your thinking. Paul says to them. And this is such an important word for the church today. The importance of critical thinking can scarcely be overstated. Critical thinking is critical for the church, for the Christian life, for everybody to rightly understand and apply the Word of God. Critical thinking through the lens of the Christian worldview is vital. And I don't know if you've picked up on this, but there are many, many people in our society who are lazy thinkers. They're just lazy when it comes to thinking. And that percentage seems to be growing. Maybe the ratio is staying the same and there's just more people to represent that category, but man, it just seems like there are so many lazy thinkers out there in society, in the culture. People want to live in ignorance oftentimes. And it's one of the saddest things to me. A lot of times people just want to be told the what. Well, what do I believe? What do I do? Just tell me. And they don't care about the why behind it, let alone examining other people's positions and understanding why someone else may have a different point of view. This isn't the way a Christian should live. It should not be the mark of a Christian to be a lazy thinker. But Christians should be mature in thinking. They should not be children in thinking. And Paul is calling the church in Corinth here in verse 20 to thank for themselves and to think together. There's a cross-reference I want to share with you from the book of Ephesians. In Ephesians 4, he says something similar to that church. Ephesians 4, starting in verse 11, Paul writes that he, talking about Jesus, gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers. For what purpose? Well, verse 12 says, "...for the equipping of the saints for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ." And verse 14, "...as a result..." We are no longer to be children, tossed here and there by the waves carried about, by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness in deceitful scheming. How are you to be anchored in your Christian life, not to be taken captive by a false teaching, not to be led astray by bad doctrine and bad teaching, to grow in your thinking, to grow in your mind, to mature, not to be an infant in your thinking, but to be mature. Uh, the youth pastor that Melissa and I had at our church in, back in Missouri, he would often say, don't be baby birds when you're fed something. Baby birds are there in the nest, their mouths are open, and feed me, feed me. They'll take whatever comes, comes into the nest, won't they? We are not to be baby birds in that sense. We are to be discerning. We are to be picky, <laughs> as I was for much of my life. I'd like to think of myself as a pretty, you know, uh, I don't know, what's the right word, eclectic eater, I guess. Uh, I used to say, when people would say I was picky, I'd say, no, I just have a very uh, deliberate palate. That's all. It's a very deliberate palate. Uh, We are to have deliberate thinking, picky thinking. Uh, We're to examine what we're told and mature and grow. When you understand not only the what of uh, of what you believe, but the why behind it, you're going to be more anchored. One of my first favorite Christian books was by an author, his last name is Little, I think it was Robert Little. It was titled, Know Why You Believe. When I first saw that book as a new Christian, I thought, hey, I do want to know why I believe. I know what I believe, but I want to know why I believe. And that's a great calling for every Christian. We are to have a mature spiritual perception in our lives. Scripture calls us to test the Spirit's. How can you do that if you're immature or like a child in your thinking? Scripture says to abhor what is evil. You can't do that if your mind isn't mature. Scripture tells us positively, cling to what is good. You can't do that if you're not growing in your understanding and in your thinking. So Paul says to them, and he says to all of us, do not be children in your thinking. And this is so important in the realm of application, Paul's getting into some application here with their church and how this affects how they apply spiritual gifts in the gathered assembly. But for you personally, as you learn from the Word of God, in order to apply the truths of the Word of God to your life, you have to continue to grow in your thinking and understanding and in your wisdom. You may notice that I don't always go as far as some people might want me to in the areas of application. I could stand up here and say, Well, because of this, that means this, that means that, that means that, and that means that you should live this way or that way. Now, sometimes that's called for, but oftentimes it's not. Many times, you know, what we just, we preach what it says and the text doesn't go all the way to some places where we might want it to go. It's kind of like teach a man to fish or give a man a fish. If you give a man a fish, he eats for a day, teach a man how to fish and indefinitely he can eat. Well, it's the same with application. I could stand up here and I could be the Holy Spirit for you and apply Scriptures left and right, but that wouldn't be good. I'm a bad Holy Spirit, okay? You've been given the true Holy Spirit, and we need to learn and grow in the area of personal application of the Word of God as He leads us, as the Spirit Himself guides and directs. Life change starts in the mind. Maturity starts in the mind. And church purity starts here too. That's why Paul puts this in here as he talks about the purity of gathered local church worship. It starts in the mind. So how should we use our minds in our Christian context? Well, you must commit to thinking for yourself first and then thinking with others every time. Every time we are to commit to thinking for ourselves and then thinking with our brothers and sisters in Christ. And this is challenging. It's challenging to think for yourself. Why? It's just hard. I don't know. It's hard. <laughs> this last week, I did not want to put together a sermon. Most weeks, I do. Most weeks, I, I just, I'm excited to do it. I love it. This last week, it's that weird week between Christmas and New Year's that just isn't even a real week. Like, what is this thing we just lived? And I'm tasked with working through this passage, and I just didn't want to do it. But it's my calling as a pastor to put this together. And it's our calling, each one of us as Christians, to think as difficult as it may be and as much as we just don't want to sometimes. We need to be mature in our thinking. We need to work out our thoughts in the context of our spiritual community relying on one another as we grow in our thinking, sharing our thoughts with one another. Iron sharpens iron, Scripture says, and we get together and we're to sharpen one another. One man is to sharpen another. And so, we are to be thinkers as Christians. And in the middle of verse 20, between his statements about being mature in thinking, see at the start, he says, do not be children, and at the end, he says, be mature. Well, in between there, he says, in evil, be infants. Be infants. We are to be as infants in regard to evil. And this is in contrast to thinking rightly, to having wisdom. Evil is something we are to avoid. For the Corinthians, it's interesting because that's basically what they were majoring in. You read through these chapters of this letter, and they were just having problems left and right. They were indulging themselves in evil behavior. And Paul says, let's not do that. Instead, let's grow in our understanding of Christ. Your translation might say, I think it's the New Living that that words it this way, you are to be as innocent as infants in terms of evil. That's not really what's being said here. Infants aren't innocent, are they? Uh, If you've ever raised one, you know, uh, they, they aren't innocent. But instead, it's saying we are to be unlearned in evil. Just as an infant is unlearned in all sorts of things in the world, when it comes to evil, we are to be ignorant of it. When it comes to evil, it should be just as foreign to us as chemistry is to Jeremiah Stucker. Uh, This little baby, put the periodic table in front of him, and he'll just drool all over it. He doesn't know what to do with it. And for us, that's how we should be in regard to evil, so foreign to us. So with this pertinent call to commit to thinking in verse 20, Paul now focuses on prophecy and tongues in the context of local church worship. Read with me. Look, to, look down with me, and I'll read verses 21 to 25. He just jumps from this call to be mature in your thinking to verse 21. "'In the law it is written, by men of strange tongues and by the lips of strangers, I will speak to this people. And even so, they will not listen to me,' says the Lord. "'So then tongues are for a sign, not to those who believe, but to unbelievers.'" But prophecy is for a sign not to unbelievers, but to those who believe. Therefore, if the whole church assembles together and all speak in tongues and ungifted men or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are mad? But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or an ungifted man enters, he is convicted by all, he is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so he will fall on his face and worship God. Declaring that God is certainly among you. Well, this is an amazing passage, and this is where the difficulties come into play. Uh, You can think of this last portion of the sermon as being in two sections, the first section being that tongues were assigned for the unbelieving, and the other section being that prophecy was assigned for the believing. But let's start with this idea that tongues were assigned for the believing. You see that in verse 22, the start of verse 22, a very straightforward statement tongues are not to those who believe a sign, but to unbelievers tongues are a sign. Very interesting statement. And that verse casts the vision for this whole passage, the difference between tongues and prophecy. But in verse 21, we have this quote, Paul says, from the law. When he says from the law here, he's talking about the Old Testament. He doesn't mean specifically the Torah because he's quoting Isaiah here. He's not quoting one of the first five books of the Bible, but he gives this quote from the Old Testament saying, by men of strange tongues and by the lips of strangers, I will speak to this people, and even so, they will not listen to me. Why is he quoting this passage from Isaiah? Well, to understand how Israel viewed foreign tongues, we need to understand that Israel was told by God, they understood in the First Testament that foreign tongues were a sign of judgment against them. When people came along with another tongue other than the Hebrew tongue, when foreigners were going to take over Israel and lead them, that was a sign of God's judgment, that people will come along in a language they don't understand and conquer them, and they won't be able to know what is being said. I want to read to you from Deuteronomy 28. You don't need to turn there, but in Deuteronomy 28, verses 49 and 50, God talks about how they will be cursed if they don't keep the law. It says, "'The Lord will bring a nation against you, Israel, from afar and from the end of the earth, as the eagle swoops down, a nation whose language you shall not understand, a nation of fierce countenance, who will have no respect for the old, nor show favor to the young.'" This was God's warning to Israel if they didn't keep His law. What would happen? Well, a nation's going to come in... And they're going to have a language you don't understand, and they're going to show no mercy. What a dreadful situation for this nation that was to prosper under the hand of God with one language, with perfect communication, with God's blessing. Well, this, of course, is what happened to Israel. The nation broke into two kingdoms, the northern kingdom, the southern kingdom. They were both conquered by other nations, the north by the Assyrians, the southern kingdom by the Babylonians. This is what happened. Well, Isaiah talked about this very thing. Isaiah warned Israel. This is from Isaiah 28. If you can turn there with me, Isaiah chapter 28, and we'll start at verse 1. This is important for you to get because we don't want to skip over Paul's reasoning. Paul is quoting this section of Isaiah for a purpose, and we need to understand what he's saying. But Isaiah is here writing in Israel's day, giving them a warning of the coming conquering nations. And he's explaining why this is happening to them. He starts off by explaining Israel's sin. Isaiah 28, starting in verse 1, this prophet in Israel called out to the people, talking about the northern kingdom here when he references Ephraim. Isaiah 28, verse 1, Isaiah says, "'Woe to the proud crown of the drunkards of Ephraim, and to the fading flower of its glorious beauty, which is at the head of the fertile valley of, who, of those who are overcome with wine. Drop down to verse 7 with me, the middle of verse 7. Isaiah says of Israel, the priest and the prophet reel with strong drink. Is this a good state for Israel to be in? Oh my, how terrible. They are confused by wine. They stagger from strong drink. They reel while having visions. They totter while rendering judgment. For all the tables are full of filthy vomit without a single clean place. This was the state of Israel, not keeping the law of God, rejecting the commands of God. And so, that warning we read from Deuteronomy 28, here it comes, here it comes. In verse 9, Isaiah now is taking the voice of those who might respond to him in Israel, who don't regard him as a prophet. These people in Israel say back to Isaiah, to whom would He teach knowledge, and to whom would He interpret the message? Those just weaned from milk, those just taken from the breast? For He says, order on order, order on order, line on line, line on line, a little here, a little there. They're mocking the prophet. They're mocking Isaiah. And Isaiah responds, verse 11, indeed, He will speak to this people through stammering lips and a foreign tongue. This is what's being quoted in 1 Corinthians 14. He who said to them, Here is rest, give rest to the weary, and here is repose, but they would not listen. So the word of the Lord to them will be order on order, order on order, line on line, line on line, a little here, a little there, that they may go and stumble backward and be broken, snared and taken captive. That's a strong rebuke from the God of Israel. To mock the prophet, God says, well, this is what I'm going to do. And interestingly, that's what Paul is quoting in 1 Corinthians 14, when he says, tongues are for a sign. We see in Deuteronomy that we read, in Isaiah that we read, both chapter 28s, maybe that's a way you can remember that. We see that God is, when He rejects Israel as a nation, He's going to show them a sign, these foreign tongues, these foreign tongues that enter and conquer so they won't understand. Now turn with me to Acts 2, because this happened again. In Acts chapter 2, we see once again foreign tongues entering the picture as a judgment against Israel. Just as the northern kingdom was physically conquered by a foreign tongue, the Assyrians, the southern kingdom was physically conquered by a foreign tongue, the Babylonians, now we have in Acts chapter 2 a sign of foreign tongues that shows a spiritual turning. Start with verse, in verse 5 with me, Acts chapter 2, verse 5. This is, of course, at Pentecost. It says, Now there were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the crowd came together and were bewildered because, listen to this, each one of them was hearing them speak In his own language, you had the apostles and some others who were praying. The Holy Spirit came upon them. They were filled with the Holy Spirit, and they spoke with other tongues. And the crowd that was all gathered in Jerusalem for Pentecost, from all these different nations, they were hearing the foreign tongues being spoken in Jerusalem. Verse 7, they were amazed and astonished, saying, Why, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we each hear them in our own language to which we were born? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia and Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the districts of Libya around Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them in our own tongues speaking of the mighty deeds of God. Verse 12, and they all continued in amazement with great perplexity, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others were mocking and said, they are full of sweet wine. But Peter, taking his stand with the eleven, raised his voice and declared to them, Men of Judea and all you who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give heed to my words. For these men are not drunk as you suppose, for it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was spoken of through the prophet Joel. And then he goes on to explain the initial fulfillment of that prophecy from Joel 2. But we have foreign languages being spoken in Jerusalem among the Jews, yet another sign of God's judgment against this nation who had wholeheartedly rejected their Messiah, who had as a whole rejected God's plan of salvation. I want you to think about a parable that Jesus told. He was talking about a, a vineyard that a man owned, and the man went away. And while he was gone, he hired people to watch over his vineyard to cultivate fruit. And when the time came for harvest, he sent his slaves to go get his fruit from the cultivated vineyard. Well, the slaves came and there was a squabble. These men roughed him up, beat them up. Okay, well, that was interesting. So the man sent more slaves down there to go get his fruit. And slaves went down there and they roughed him up again. Another squabble. Slaves are coming back saying, hey, we can't get fruit out of these people. So the owner says, you know what, I'll send my son. They will respect my son. So he sends his son to the vineyard. And those vine workers who were tasked with bringing fruit in his garden, they said, the son, he's going to get the inheritance. We should kill him and take the inheritance for ourselves. What should happen to that vineyard owner? Jesus asked a group of Jews. And they said, well, they should get what they deserve. They should get the wrath of God. And Jesus says in Matthew 21, verse 43, this is just an amazing response that Jesus had to these people. Therefore, I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people, producing the fruit of it. What a strong judgment against that nation. What a strong judgment. They rejected their Messiah. They rejected the Son of God. And there were consequences. And foreign tongues are a part of that sign. We see it at Pentecost, and we see it ongoing in the church of Corinth. As the Jews proved to be unfit stewards of the kingdom of God, just as God planned, He's now turned to another people. Just as we talked about in Sunday school today, it was amazing how Sunday school really fits with the message today. God now provoking Israel to jealousy and to anger, Romans 10 says, He's now given the kingdom to another people, speaking in foreign tongues. And in this context, we get 1 Corinthians 14.22. Now, that's a lot of context that you may not have seen in 1 Corinthians 14, isn't it? Wow, what what an amazing thing that God is doing. So then we get 14.22 that says, So then, tongues are for a sign, not to those who believe, but to unbelievers. Let's talk about the nature of signs we see the word sign come up twice in our text, in verse 22, rather. The word sign appears two times. If you're using a New American Standard, you may notice that the second time the word sign appears, it's in italics. Anytime there are words in italics in your Bible, if you're using the New American Standard at least, that means that those words aren't in the original. Okay? So, it would woodenly read this way, "...so then tongues are for a sign, not to those who believe, but to unbelievers." But prophecy not to unbelievers, but to those who believe. So the translators of the New American Standard put that in, thinking, well, Paul's just kind of mirroring the thought here. He must be saying that prophecy is a sign for believers. And I tend to agree with that. There are some who disagree. But I want to talk about the nature of sign before we get too far down the road. Tongues are for a sign. Well, what does that mean? A sign is a wonder. You see that word paired with signs often in the New Testament, signs and wonders. A sign is a wonder. That means it's extraordinary. A sign isn't something ordinary. It's miraculous. It's a phenomenon. And a sign is also a proof or an evidence that's pointing to something else, or a proof or an evidence for something else, you could say. When we consider the purpose of tongues we have this big Bible context from Deuteronomy, Isaiah, Acts, and other places. We have this context that tells us that the purpose of tongues, the sign of tongues, was to identify the Spirit's work in the world, especially to Israel. Now, in this sense, it was a sign of a blessing. Do you remember in the book of Acts, uh, in chapter 10, there were some Gentiles who spoke in tongues. Peter was preaching the gospel, and they spoke in tongues, and they said, hey, should we be baptized? And, and Peter said, well, you've received the Holy Spirit just as we have. You just spoke with tongues. You just spoke in other languages. That's the sign that you've received the Holy Spirit. Why not get baptized? And so they were baptized there on the spot. And in Acts chapter 11, Peter's telling the other Jews, you wouldn't believe this. Just like back at, at Pentecost, when we first received the Holy Spirit, the same thing happened to the Gentiles. It's a sign. It's an identification of God's blessing by the Holy Spirit. But particularly, it's a sign to Israel that God is using the Gentiles for something. And as the Gentiles received the Holy Spirit and the gift was manifested through them, it did signify judgment against Israel. That God had taken the kingdom from that nation and given it to another people who speak other languages. The unspiritual, then, as they spoke in tongues, wouldn't understand the message. As Those filled with the Holy Spirit spoke with other languages. Those who are unspiritual can't understand. And so what's their spiritual condition? Well, they're fixed in their judgment. They can't hear and believe because it's a foreign tongue, and so it's a sign of judgment in that sense as well. We talked about in Sunday school just briefly, I think Andy mentioned it, the purpose of parables. Remember when Jesus explained the purpose of parables? It wasn't what we would all think it would be. Why does Jesus speak in parables? well he's taking a big, a big uh, abstract concept and he's making it really simple and so that we can understand it says that the purpose of parables, Jesus said the purpose of parables was so that people who had ears wouldn't hear and that people who had eyes wouldn't see. God is coding the message God's veiling the message from certain people in certain ways and when people were filled with the Spirit and spoke in tongues, the same kind of thing is happening in that they can't hear the message and they are in a state of condemnation, a state of judgment, particularly the nation of Israel. Well, the Corinthians practicing of this gift needed to be directed by the purpose. If this is the purpose of tongues, which is not what you hear in a lot of places, especially where they're really excited about practicing tongues you won't hear any of that. You just won't. If that's the purpose of tongues, then how were the Corinthians then to employ this gift rightly in the church? How does that work? Well, Paul says in verse 23, there's something very clear that they are to avoid. Verse 23 says, "...if the whole church assembles together and all speak in tongues, and ungifted men or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are mad?" That Corinthian church is anything like ours. They didn't need any help in that area. People think we're mad already, right? You don't need to be giving them another reason. But if everyone is together speaking in different languages, that's chaos. That's utter chaos. The gift was not to be employed in such a way. This was their abuse of the gift. They were all using it indiscriminately. They were all getting together and, saying, and seeing who could be the most spiritual and speaking in these foreign languages. Totally not the purpose, for this gift. So corporate worship, Paul is saying, is to be the hub of edification. Corporate worship isn't to be the hub of competitions to see who can do the most phenomena, who can can practice the most wonders, who can do the most extraordinary signs. That is not the purpose of the local church. The purpose of the local church is edification based on the revelation of God. Unfamiliar individuals, Paul says, they wouldn't be edified by such a scene. They're unfamiliar with this work of the Spirit. How are they going to receive edification? They can't. And the church's purpose is to edify. Now, here's something really interesting. Stay with me. Turn, turn to Acts 18. Stay, keep a finger in 1 Corinthians, but turn to Acts 18. This is the start of the church in Corinth. This is the the beginning of this church. We'll start at verse 5, Acts 18, verse 5. It's important to remember the context because we don't have with every church its origin story, its biography, its historical sketch. But we've got quite a bit for the church at Corinth. And I want you to put all these pieces together and think through this. Acts 18, verse 5. It says, When Silas and Timothy came down from Macedonia, Paul began devoting himself completely to the Word. Solemnly testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. But when they resisted and blasphemed, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am clean. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. That's, what, that's Paul's mission. Then he left there, the synagogue, the Jews, and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. Listen to this whose house was next to the synagogue. Where did the church of Corinth start? Next to the synagogue. That's pretty amazing. Let's keep reading. Verse 8, Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, believed in the Lord with this whole household. That's amazing. And many of the Corinthians, <clears throat> when they heard, were believing and being baptized. And the Lord said in, to Paul in the night by a vision, do not be afraid any longer. But go on speaking, and do not be silent. For I am with you, and no man will attack you in order to harm you. For I have many people in this city. And he settled there a year and six months, teaching the Word of God among them. Wow! They gathered next to a synagogue, and soon thereafter, the leader of the synagogue believed. Do you think they had many conversations with unbelieving Jews? Do you think it's probable that unspiritual, unbelieving Jews would wander in to their church meetings next to the synagogue after the leader of the synagogue believed? Yes. I'm sure that was happening. And I think Paul is saying specifically, if an unbelieving Jew walks in and God is perhaps specially manifesting this sign in Corinth for that purpose, use the gift appropriately. Don't create chaos. Don't don't cause the Jew to stumble needlessly. Christ is enough for that. But instead, do all things in order that you may win the lost, even the unbelieving Jews there in Corinth. So Paul is saying to them, tongues have to be interpreted for church use, for edification. Now, in verse 22, again, the pairing with this is that tongues being assigned to unbelievers, prophecy is a sign for believers. And this is very interesting because he goes on to give an illustration starting in verse 24, again, about an unbeliever entering. He says, prophecy is for believers. And then the illustration he gives is about its effect on unbelievers. Well, how does this make any sense? I hope to make some sense out of it. (laughs) Uh, let's, Let's walk through this together. Well, just as uh, tongues were a sign, I think it's appropriate to say that prophecy was also a sign, and it identified the Spirit's work in the church. As the Spirit was working in the church of God, and they were able to give revelation from God, this was a sign to people. It was a sign to them, and I do think it was a sign even to unbelievers in a sense, especially Israel. But when you think about spiritual Israel, those converted Jews Wouldn't this be a great sign to them, those who believe in their Messiah, that God is at work among the Gentiles also, if they're able to prophesy? What an amazing sign, just as God used tongues to show Peter that the Gentiles can believe and be a part of this family. So he's using prophecy to show that the Gentiles are a part of the family of God when they believe in Christ. And what happens to a believer when he hears God's Word? Let's think about how God's Word is assigned to believers. What happens? Well, I hope you know that as the truths of God's revelation are proclaimed, a person, a believing person, is convicted by the Holy Spirit who dwells within. A believing person is encouraged by the Holy Spirit who dwells within. A person receives joy and peace from the Holy Spirit by the Word of God. A person will even have it Affirmed to his spirit that he is a child of God by this work of the word of God going out. God uses the means of his word to give his people confidence that they have the spirit of God. I hope you've experienced that in your life. Sometimes we can get so afraid of feelings, so afraid of emotions, so afraid of affections. And there are certain things that we should be wary of in that realm. I, I don't disagree. But there is something that God does within us through the Word of God that affirms in our hearts that we are His, that we belong to Him. I love what John MacArthur said about this passage. It's just a short quote. But he said, The church's most powerful testimony is not its ecstasies, tongues or signs or wonders. It's not any of those things. But the church's most powerful testimony is is in its clear proclamation of the powerful Word of God. That's our most powerful testimony as a group of believers assembled together to worship, is our proclamation of the powerful Word of God. But let's walk through this illustration uh, that Paul gives, starting in verse 24, and think through how this all works. In verse 24, Paul gives another example. He says, "If, if all prophesy, that's everyone in the church prophesying, And an unbeliever or an ungifted man enters, what happens? He is convicted by all. He is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed. And so he will fall on his face and worship God, declaring that God is certainly among you. Wow. Unbelievers are blessed even though the sign isn't primarily for them, Paul is saying. The first thing that happens when someone walks in, Paul says, and all are prophesying is conviction, conviction. This, of course, is a work of the Holy Spirit regarding sin, convicted of your sin. This is the first thing that needs to happen if you're going to believe the gospel. If you believe the gospel and have no conviction of your sin, you haven't understood your predicament. You haven't understood the good news because you don't know why you need the good news. But as Jesus said, the Holy Spirit convicts the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. This is an indication of that here in this example. He's convicted by the Holy Spirit of his sin through the means of all prophesying in the church, calling this one to repentance. That's the first thing. See, the second thing, it's accountability. Not just convicted by all, but he's called to account by all. This is the people of God in unity affirming the need of repentance and faith, the people of God gathered for worship and and loving on an unbeliever through a proclamation of the truth. Some people might say, well, that's not love. Well, that's the supreme act of love, issuing the gospel to someone who doesn't know the gospel and saying, you need to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, called to account by all. In verse 25, it says that the secrets of his heart are disclosed. Now, that's interesting. The secrets of his heart are disclosed. That could mean a couple of things. On the one hand, at that that time, it could have meant miraculous revelation given to someone in the church. Someone saying, you, can you imagine if I did this? Jerry, I I can pick on Jerry. I know what you did on this trip. You need to repent, brother, and give me $25. No, I... Oh, there was a TV preacher that Wayne told me about he was listening to at late night. Wayne, you got to stay away from the TV preachers. You didn't write a check, did you, Wayne? He didn't. He didn't. But it could have been through miraculous revelation that this church was issued what was happening in someone's life, their hidden sin, and it was disclosed. It could just be that as they proclaimed the gospel, as they taught the Word of God, this person openly confessed. This person did the disclosing of what was happening in his life. But it was light shining in a dark heart, no matter what it was. And that's what happens through the preaching, the proclamation of the Word of God. And then finally, you see the last thing in verse 25, what happens when prophecy takes place? Well, it leads to worship, it leads to a testimony, it leads to conversion. That's what this is. When God has so chosen to save an individual and He's using the means of the proclamation of His Word in the church, that could lead very well To that moment, the person falling on his face and declaring, God is surely among you. I want to be a part of this family. I want Jesus. I need Jesus. Paul here is likely echoing a couple of Old Testament passages. There's one in Isaiah 45. There's another one in Zechariah 8. I'll read to you. This is from Zechariah 8, 23, talking about the time in the future when God restores the kingdom to Israel. This is what's going to happen in Israel. Thus says the Lord of hosts, in those days, ten men from all the nations will grasp the garment of a Jew, saying, let us go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. Same idea. At this future time of restoration, it'll be so evident that God is among them. They're going to be clinging on to the cloak of the Jews, saying, God is with you. What an amazing time that'll be. You think that'll be a sign? <laughs> that'll be a sign to the Jews that they're blessed by God and even now as it's happening among His church, isn't it a sign to us? Do we pray for these kind of signs? Do we long for this kind of sign? A lot of people want miracles. A lot of people want water into wine. A lot of people want to be delivered from personal illnesses. And I get it. But do we want to see people saved? Do we want the sign that affirms that God is truly among us? that through the proclamation of His Word, we are blessed in the presence of someone repenting. We are blessed by being in the presence of someone having faith in Jesus Christ. We need to long for this sign, church. This is a sign that we need to be desperate for. Not all the funny stuff on TV or on YouTube and all the edited videos of this, that, or the other thing. We need to long to see the kingdom of God grow and pray for this type of sign in our church. How is this prophecy gift a sign to believers? Well, consider the effect the effect of the gift as the believing assembly witnessed this type of thing happen. An unbeliever or an ungifted man entering, being convicted, called to account disclosing the secrets of his heart falling on his face and worshiping God that's a sign to the church isn't it that we are under the blessing of God that God is using us let's pray god we again thank you because of your gospel we are restored to you because of your gospel we are found to have perfect unity with you because of your gospel In your Holy Spirit's work, we are saved. God, we ask that you would show us the amazing sign of conversion among us, among our children, among those that we haven't even met yet, that our desire would be to see people reconciled to God on the basis of faith in Jesus Christ. Give us that motivation. Give us that heart. Cause us to serve you with all that we have. In Jesus' name, amen.